I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. <laughs> I'm looking out on a football field in Doha. I'm here to find out more about the Men's World Cup. But our journey starts with a very different tournament. Who are you cheering for? For Leeds. For uh, Leeds. Why are you cheering for Leeds? Uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's our second team. Do you know who chose the name? Um, on, I think no. No, uh, I think you. Two members of the Qatar national team sit beside me, Emna and Nancy. I'm the first foreign journalist to watch Qatar's women play football in 2022. Nancy says she saw the final of the women's Euros this summer. Yeah, I watched the video. They moved their beef and... I saw it. Wasn't it incredible? Yeah. The pitch in front of us is beautifully kept, perfectly floodlit against the night sky. This seven-a-side league runs every year when the temperature drops off a bit in September. In the summer, with the humidity, it can be higher than 50 degrees. At the end of November, it'll usually be around 30. But few people are here to watch this football. I'm only here because a friend of a friend, Chloe, one of two English women on the sidelines, has got me in through the door. When I first came to Qatar, like, five years ago, there was just nothing going on. There was nothing going on. Like, maybe this was going on, but it was so so secretive and behind okay. closed doors there was just no can you see how respectful it is though look they've got everything covered yeah, yeah. you've got hijabi women that they can't uncover themselves in front of men so they cover the whole pitch yeah so that um they can have their sort of privacy as well every inch of netting surrounding the pitch is covered with heavy gauze to hide it from the outside world and everyone here down to the security guards on the gate is female and so some people from um 
outside of Qatar might be surprised yeah. that um, lots of Qatari girls were playing football. Is that? Yes, because uh, they think that there's no Qatar national team players because we don't play outside. The girls uh, can take pictures for themselves and videos so because they are wearing hijab. Yeah. So they can we can't do anything. Is there anything to do with um, with your religion? Is there anything in that? No. Why do people talk about that? Some people say, okay, religious is culture. Okay, can you explain for me? Because I'm think of me as like very, very ignorant, but trying okay. to religion understand. Religion said, don't show your uh, your skin. Okay, you wear, you can wear hijab. Of course, you have to wear hijab, mm-hmm. but it doesn't like culture said, don't. Like don't let uh, boys see you, mm-hmm. even with uh, with the hijab. Yeah, don't take photos even with hijab. That's mm-hmm. culture. Many people will meet in Qatar over the next five days for lots of different reasons. Are suspicious of microphones, but here people are clamouring to speak. I'm introduced to a Qatari woman, one of very few Qataris who'll agree to speak on tape over the course of making this documentary. Oh, she swerved in the way. She swerved in that one. So are you trying to get in the national team or is it not really? So honestly, I don't play for the national team because it's not that serious and like there's not really a proper like training like schedule and uh, it's just it's not taken seriously in general. So I'm not going to waste my time on it if it's not taken seriously. She is young, confident. Like other girls here, she has dreams of playing football at a higher level. But making the national team isn't a gateway because, well, their teammates and opponents can't play in the public eye. I think, honestly, it's, uh, most of the time it's not their choice. It's probably their parents' choices or something. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Qatar launched its women's national team in 2010 alongside the World Cup bid. But it hasn't played a competitive fixture since 2014. In 2015, it was removed from the FIFA rankings. Do you see it becoming more open since, for example, there's going to be a World Cup here in mm-hmm. very few weeks? Yeah. Uh, do I see it getting more open? Yeah, do you see more? Did you, do you feel like uh, it's having any kind of an impact? For... Honestly, no, I don't think so. I think it's just like, it's just like something that's like embedded in the culture that's going to take much longer for it to like to change, like for women to be outside playing football. And like, there's like so many like opportunities and stadiums for women to use, but like, it's just that they, they don't want to because they can't. We'll come back to these women because their stories are at the heart of what we want to find out in this series. Just what kind of place is about to host the World Cup? What will its legacy be? And most importantly, how has this tournament affected the lives of the people here? For two years, I lived and worked in Qatar as a presenter for BN Sports. I was cautiously fascinated to be there, Excited and intrigued by the fact that I, a liberal Western woman, had been hired to be a key part of BN Sports English coverage with a World Cup on the horizon. As I'll come to explain, the reality was much more complicated. Like the future of Qatar's own women's national team, there still remain so many unanswered questions about this tournament and about Qatar itself. Will 2022's legacy be as marred with controversy as its build-up? What does it mean to finally have a World Cup in the Middle East? What will fans find here? And is Qatar ready?
That is why, for the very first time since I packed my bags and left in 2019, I got on a flight back to Doha with producer Finn in tow to see things for myself, to understand what's changed, and to show you that many of the officials you've seen on the news with their sound bites aren't representative of what this country is really like. I'm Kate Mason, and this is Inside the Qatar World Cup. First, though, we need to go back to the start. It was just very, very surreal. December 2010, Zurich. It was, it was, it was the weird, as I said earlier, it was the weirdest day of my life. World leaders, delegates and FIFA committee members have gathered at FIFA's HQ to find out who will be hosting the 2018 and 2022 World Cups. Members of the media stand outside, including English journalist James Corbett. I, I, I was stood out there. Um, it was snowing in Zurich as well. I was stood out there in the snow. Um, and I remember the Qatari delegation coming in and Nasser Al-Qatar, who is now the chief executive of the World Cup. I remember him being incredibly nervous. He was just like this ball of energy. A metal fence separates the press pack from the VIPs. And NASA jumped over the fence, grabbing me by the shoulders, saying, what's going on? What's going on? He was convinced that the Australians, who of course were humiliated in the end, had pulled some trick off, pulled off some dark arts and so on. The days leading up to the announcement were decadent. All business class flights, whining, dining and luxury hotels. All very FIFA. I remember being sat up very, very late at night, the night before the vote with Chuck Blazer, who was the rather eccentric American FIFA Exco member, and him ordering drinks, drinks for everybody, whiskeys all round, he said. You know, he was he was he was living his best life there. On Thursday the 2nd of December, Sepp Blatter stands on a vast stage behind a lectern. Shall I recall the candidates? Australia. He holds an envelope secured with an elaborate wax seal. Korea. The United States are favourites to win the bid for 2022. United States of America. But yeah, there was a lot of shock when that envelope was pulled out. The winner to organise the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. So the room sort of just emptied and I found myself into the, found my way into the VIP section. And I remember uh, Bill Clinton's, uh, Bill Clinton trying to find a way out and sort of surrounded by these uh, security officials and you know they couldn't actually find the access, the access to the exit, and almost being trampled by them, and sort of walking in among all these slightly bewildered figures from from world football, um, who were trying to put a good face on things, and of course you know very very happy ecstatic Qataris and Qatari royals. My immediate reaction. And I think I tweeted it at the time. You might be able to find it if you if you've got those skills. Was uh oh, there's trouble ahead. Because I don't think the world was ready for it. Twelve years later, and on the eve of eve of the Qatar World Cup, I still don't think the world is ready for the greatest show on earth to be to be staged in such a tiny and very alien desert state. 
The cries of foul play were deafening. We were, were certainly of the understanding that we had uh, significantly more support than that. What do you mean by that? Were you promised votes? Well, you know, certain, certainly all the discussions we had would have led us to believe and believe confidently that we had more support. And indeed, since 2010, nearly everyone involved in the decision has been sanctioned or banned from world football. Yes, yeah, some news just into us uh, that former FIFA president Sepp Blatter and also Michel Platini have been charged with fraud and other offences by Swiss prosecutors after a six... When Sepp Blatter opened that envelope, Qatar had a population of just over 1.8 million people. It had just one stadium fit to host a World Cup game. How could they pull it off? Years later, Sepp Blatter would say it was a mistake to choose Qatar to host the 2022 World Cup. But back then, in 2010, just one sentence in FIFA's 38-page evaluation of the Qatar bid acknowledged the scale of the task at hand in words that seem jarringly casual now. The considerable number of infrastructure projects and volume of temporary event time services imply significant human resource requirements. Even with a higher rate of immigration than anywhere else in the world, how on earth were they going to find the people they needed to get this done? The image of Doha you probably recognise is the skyline. And that part of the town is called West Bay. And it really is astonishing to think of it as having... It would have been complete. If you'd been here in the 70s, it would have been completely empty. And we're driving towards it now. And it's just shiny skyscraper after shiny skyscraper. The only building that would have been there 50 years ago, 45-ish years ago, is a Sheraton, which is a little low-slung triangular building. And the rest of it would have been nothing. This is the view from the Corniche, Qatar's glamorous waterfront promenade that hugs Doha Bay. In this small city of just 132 square kilometres, just a little bit bigger than Bristol, by the way, Everything is close. About five minutes' drive from here is Albida Park, still a vast, open, largely empty space, which we're told will host the tournament's biggest fan zone. A couple of minutes further on, you'll find Souk Wakif, a marketplace with old-style architecture and, if Qatar Tourism's recent campaign is anything to go by, home to David Beckham's favourite ever spice market. It's one of the best spice markets that I've ever been to. This will go down as one of my favourite mornings. Drive just 30 minutes north on this same road and you're out in the desert with flat, dusty plains on your left as far as the eye can see until you reach Alcor, a small, sparse city home mostly to oilfield workers which will host the very first game at the World Cup. To go from an empty skyline, none of this modern, urban living... Hardly anybody, hardly any other immigrants here, what, 70 years ago, to welcoming the world in November 2022. It's a fascinating contradiction and a contrast, really. Everything had to be built from scratch. This is Vani Saraswati. Highways, public transport, everything, it all came up in this period. Many migrants passed through Qatar for a couple of years, like I did. But Vani lived here for almost 18 years as a journalist, so she has a deep understanding of Qatar's recent history. 
She's now editor-at-large for MigrantRights.org. When I moved, there were just 600,000 people. The population was just 600,000 in 99. And then in 10 years, it tripled to 1.8 million. So things changed pretty quickly. The native population of Qatar is tiny but very wealthy. But the country already had a huge migrant population who predominantly came from India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Kenya and the Philippines. The majority were single men, searching for opportunities for work they couldn't find in their homeland. The way I think about it is that there are lots of different Qatars. Everybody is very much compartmentalised. Um, and that's very, I feel that's a deliberate strategy. Um, you know, John McManus is the author of Inside Qatar. He's a social anthropologist, which means he studies the ways people live in different social and cultural settings. If you're a low-income worker from South Asia, then you're in the country uh, to engage in like manual labour or service work. Then, and you're male, then we're going to house you with other males in a camp, uh, probably outside of the city limits. Uh, if you're a, you know. Uh, European who is working, you know, in a job in the service industry, maybe you're like an academic or like a consultant, uh, then you'll live in a skyscraper in the centre of town uh, and you'll take taxis everywhere and you'll obviously have, quote unquote, more freedom of movement, but actually you'll have just a different set of kind of points that you'll probably go to and, and they won't often, if ever, cross with those people in the first group. Uh, and then you can carry on with this game in terms of like, well, if you're from the Philippines and if you're from uh, and you're working in the service industry or if you're from Africa and you're a security guard. What I found when I was here is that there is actually not a lot of interaction with people outside of those demographics. John paints a picture of a deeply segregated society. And in the decade after the World Cup was awarded, Qatar had the highest rate of net migration in the world. Seven huge World Cup-ready stadiums and a brand new metro system needed to be built. And that was where the problems began to accelerate. So you had a period in the beginning, I'm talking about when I saw, where the, a construction company needed 100 people. They recruited all 100 people because that was the scale of their building. But the scale started growing and businesses um, reduced the number, the percentage of direct hires. So that's where the problem started coming up, right? It was just easier for them now when the scale increased and you needed 1,000 boots on ground to build whatever you were building, you didn't want to take responsibility for 1,000 workers. So you started subcontracting. That subcontracting chain is a very corrupt chain and a very exploitative chain. Hiring another company to fulfil part of an order, subcontracting, happens in supply chains all around the world. You might have heard of the exploitative side of it in the context of fast fashion brands. Wrap it up in the Gulf's controlling labour system, and it was similarly bad news. That system is known as kafala. I asked Nick McGeehan, who's worked on migrant worker abuses in the Gulf since 2004, to explain what it means. Kafala, uh, it's, a, it's a sponsorship system of employment. I mean, we've got them in the UK. You know, if someone from uh, the United States, for example, wants to get a work and residence visa in the UK, they have to be sponsored by their employer. 
and once they leave that job, it's not guaranteed that they'd be able to stay with that employer. So these systems operate all over the world. The difference with the Gulf states kafala systems is that they sit hand in hand with a load of other really deeply abusive control mechanisms. So for example, you don't have your passport and you're in a load of debt, you don't have a trade union to represent you, and there's no free press to talk about your conditions and you can't get access to the court. And the, the employer himself or the sponsor has a, an incredible level of control over you because there's no um, there's no punishment for them you know, if they abuse that system. So whereas a sponsorship system in the UK, for example, isn't, doesn't really have a lot of abusive or exploitative potential, the sponsorship system, Kafala, in the Gulf has huge exploitative potential and it is what binds the worker to the employer and makes it impossible for them to leave the country, to change jobs or really to, to, to go to the courts and complain about abuse because the employer or the sponsor uh, has the ability to essentially deport you. Not long after the World Cup was first awarded, we began to hear of unpaid wages, forced deportations, workers faced with exorbitant recruitment fees just to get a job, and then, when they did finally arrive, discovering their pay was half what they thought it would be. In 2016, Amnesty's World Cup of Shame report transformed the conversation. Here was clear evidence that, Despite the promises, migrants building a stadium for the World Cup were being abused and exploited. That was the Khalifa Stadium, which will host England's opening group stage game against Iran. Amnesty International's expert on Qatar is worried by the direction in which some sections of the government are heading. Ten minutes after the last time we met, uh, we were arrested in Doha. Uh, And another issue was coming to light. Where was Qatar housing all these new workers? It's a tiny country, it's a small city, the capital city. So you started ghettoizing them, you started building these massive labour camps in the, in the so-called industrial areas and outside in the desert. And some of the uh, fishing villages which had um, a, a, you know, a local Qatari community, an organic community, that was again marginalised because they were moving um, low-income migrant workers into housing there. So they wanted to keep the city as you know, glitzy as possible and started moving uh, the camps outside and busing the workers in to build the city. And then, because they were out of sight, they were often out of mind as well. So nobody was really bothering to see what their conditions were. Inlands far away from the glittering high-rise buildings of West Bay, there is a part of Doha on the edge of the city that has become the home of hundreds of thousands of migrant workers, the industrial area. When I first went to the industrial area 2013, 2014, it was literally like you drove from Qatar and then you crossed over into Nepal. This is Pete Patterson. He's been reporting on workers' rights for years and was one of the first English journalists to shine a light on the situation in Qatar after the World Cup bid. In the nights, there were no street lights. The roads were barely paved. There were massive potholes everywhere. There were huge traffic jams. Uh, and the, the name of it's you know incredible. It gives away the nature of the place. It's a place of factories, of warehouses. It's a place where excavators and diggers are, are stored. And in amongst all of this, there are these massive dormitories uh, where low-wage workers are housed. Uh, you know, often in very crowded rooms, in bunk beds, and in very poor conditions. Of course, not all workers live here, and in recent years, conditions have improved. The roads have been paved, and there are new accommodation blocks. 
the stories remain. We spoke to one former worker over Zoom, Joffrey Otieno. He came from Kenya to work at a gas plant and then became a health and safety monitor in construction in 2020, at which point he moved into the industrial area. Actually, I was living, I, I, my company was, around, was, was having around 700 employees. These 700 employees, we were in two buildings, two buildings of four floors each. So you roughly you can do your maths and see. Because in our cubicle, we were living eight of us in a room of less than 10 by 10. These are double beds, four double beds carrying eight, eight workers. So you can imagine a whole floor having only two bathrooms, on the left, far left, and on the far right, with around 10 to 12 cubicles during COVID. This was totally a breeding, breeding area, so it was so hard. How long were you living in that room for? Almost two years. So this is what you saw. You saw the individual big companies not taking responsibility for the people who are helping them profit because they said, okay, our direct hires will take care of. The subcontractor is a subcontractor's problem, the subcontracted employees. And the problem we see now in the country is very much this. You have workers working for an entity that they don't have a relationship with where they can't take their grievances to directly. And this is it. Despite these conditions, workers like Joffrey have had little choice but to submit to the hand they've been dealt. The cost of returning home without completing their work is just too big. I understand that when you first arrived in Qatar in 2018, you discovered that your wage was 750 Qatari rials, which was half of what you'd been offered before you departed. How did that make you feel? I was dismayed. I was angry at that time and I almost lost it because it was not right for me. And considering the fact that I had the foundation of being in the labor movement, that was one of the greatest violations for me. Actually, I I declined to sign. It took me a week to reconsider. And what made you decide to sign it in the end? What made me sign is I thought I'd already taken the loan to pay the recruitment fees, one. Because, so I knew either way I have to pay the money. Secondly, I was looking at the stigma. He went to Qatar, he could not, he did not succeed. Other people have succeeded with, under the same conditions. So as a man in a family of girls, actually I'm the only boy in a, in a family of six, of seven, I'm the only boy, six girls and me. So I thought it wouldn't sound good. So many of these workers that I speak to have so few opportunities at home, they're compelled to go abroad and, you know, to places like Qatar. Journalist Pete Patterson again. And despite the problems they face there, the small amount of money they can earn in Qatar is considerably more than they can earn at home. And so they're they're, they're caught in this kind of trap where the only thing worse than being in Qatar is not being in Qatar. 
In 2021, Pete Patterson and The Guardian revealed what seemed like the inevitable outcome of over a decade of exploitation. In a shocking revelation, reports suggest that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup 10 years ago. According to reports, an average of 12 migrant... This figure only related to deaths among South Asian workers. And as Nick McGeehan himself says in the article, there was no question that most of them were in Qatar because of the World Cup. They'd been reported as natural deaths, often attributed to sudden and unexplained heart or respiratory failure. Mohammed Ouassin Udin Bayan, a Bangladeshi journalist, contributed to the report. Those who died in Qatar... Uh, especially in the construction field and also in the uh, in the labor camps were deprived of getting their uh, compensation because in the cause of death were mentioned here normal if the uh, cause of death is mentioned is workplace accident then they are entitled to get their compensation or they can demand their compensations in other words in qatar they were being recorded as non work related we asked Awasim if one case sticks in his mind from the reported figures. And this migrant died in labor camp. His name was Sujon Mia, and he died in Qatar uh, labor camp in 2020. Uh, the the migrant uh, migrated to Qatar three years ago, before his death, and paid five thousand US dollar as a migration cost. By working three years in Qatar. The migrant did not recover the cost of migration and did not repay the loan. Very surprising issue is that when he died there, his dead body was repatriated by the donation of the Bangladeshi community people here. The employer did not take the responsibility to send back the dead body, the family claims. And the person uh, died at the age of 32 only, and he did not have any previous uh, any previous medical uh, underlying issues, but he died there. In 2020, labor reforms finally allowed workers to change jobs without the permission of their employer. But even now, listening to Pete on the eve of the World Cup, I'm left wondering whether anything has really changed at all. In my last three visits to Qatar, I have spoken to probably over 100 workers and I found one or two who had been able to change jobs. It is still very, very difficult for low-wage workers in Qatar to change jobs. As one of them said to me, Kafala still exists. And here's the important thing. These reforms were introduced in 2020 and 2021. In other words, pretty much 10 years after Qatar was awarded the right to host the World Cup, after the majority of the stadiums and infrastructure had been built. So however way you look at it, uh, this World Cup has been built on the exploitation of some of the poorest workers in the region. After the break, Emran and Malcolm's stories. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. Hi, is that Emran? A contact has reached out to producer Finn from Ecodem, a workers' rights organisation. They've introduced us to Emran, a Bangladeshi migrant who got a skilled role in Qatar in 2016, working in construction. What he actually did sounds something much closer to modern slavery. And he worked directly on World Cup stadiums. He wants to talk. My company, every man, they huge amount of money from the FIFA and FIFA-related uh, different office. They collect too much money. The company were called Advanced Construction Technology Services and they were contracted to help build several major World Cup stadiums. Every day I'm working the more than 14 hours, 16 hours every day. Uh, I am uh, wake up uh, before 5 o'clock then I'm ready. Sometimes I am taking a breakfast. Sometimes I'm not taking any type of breakfast. I'm the concrete technician. I'm collect uh, collect the sample from different different stadium, Lusail, Al Sadd, Al Raya, Al Khor, the different different uh, side. Every day I am uh, receive see more than three hundred cubes per cubes, OATs, and almost nine cubes. And I put them in the water tank and every day remove 300 cubes and every day almost uh, crashing uh, 150 cubes. Uh, this is the very hard work. You know, there is no shelter, all the time sun heat. It's a, it's a one kind of uh, jail, one kind of 
punishment center sometime in Philly. Emran says that if he or one of his fellow workers got injured, the response was, take a paracetamol and carry on. Or just carry on. The Supreme Committee has prided itself on regular inspections of workers on all of its sites, but Emran tells a different story. I'm, I'm, I never meet, uh, directly never meet the any uh, FIFA officer or uh, higher officer. But before check, and uh, previous to check, company say, if anybody come, ask any person, they all time use the common answer. Company say, if anybody come from FIFA or, FIFA or others, ask any person, you say, this is the our company rules. This is everything is okay. Uh, all the time the Polish answer. So you were told basically what to say. I have no more other option. That was everything is fine. Once Emran had at last made back his recruitment fees, he left as quickly as possible. But I am the only one guy who already making resign. And company requests to me, Mohammed, his stand Qatar will give you the another side, the good side. There's a food, shelter, will increase your salary. I say resign. Resign means resign. I can't stay here. If I stay in Qatar, I will be die uh, maybe next two years later. 100% I will be die next two years later. So unhygienic. You are co- cooking not good. And every day the mental trauma. Physical health is there. Everybody know, but Nobody knows the mental health. In inside my heart, I have lots of sorrowful news. I have sadness. I have untold story. How can I explain? In 2020, one worker did try to explain it to the world. So we had a security guard extremely strong and powerful voice uh, who wrote a blog for us and gained a lot of attention and was trying to bring light to the situation of people like him. He was detained, held in solitary confinement for a month. Malcolm Bedali was a security guard from Kenya, like Joffrey, and his name had come up countless times in our research. So we reached out and he agreed to talk to us. So, Pauli... I've just seen the other thing in the background. That's awesome. Um, Great. Let me just get all my stuff up. He appears on screen sitting in his bedroom in Nairobi and wearing, of all things, a St. Pauli T-shirt. He has an array of the club's stickers behind him on the wall. They they have this big uh, thing on the stadium. It says, kind mensch ist illegal, meaning like no one is illegal. So they care about immigration, um, um, equal rights and all these things. So they're very political and they're very um, like socially active and and oh my goodness, like I fell in love with that. Like that is who I am. I identify with that. He discovered St. Pauli on a recent tour of Germany, he tells us, where he spoke at various locations about his experience. Sharing his words and facing the public eye, however, doesn't come easily to him. I do not like cameras. I do not like interviews. But it's my duty to speak up for uh, those who are in a position to not speak up. Malcolm was a fly on the wall. He picked up pieces of conversation in his accommodation block on the bus. 
he chatted with other guards. No one ever knew he was the mysterious Noah Articulates until his arrest. I wanted the reader to kind of put themselves like where we are and see, like I, I could mention like I'm in the top of the bunk bed and this is what I see, this is what I hear, this is what I smell, this is what we feel, this is what has happened. So like you're literally in there with us. And I, I think that's what resonated with a lot of people. Malcolm's blog changed things. Malcolm and the other security guards have been working under the sun when it was officially prohibited between 10am and 3pm. The guards were told not to be outside during that time and the company did start supplying them drinking water. But Malcolm kept rocking the boat. Okay, and then the last, well, the last one I can find from your blog is a blog you wrote about Her Highness Sheikh Moza. Um, did you realise that this was a, a big target to go at? Like, what did you feel when you decided to publish that? Yes, I knew it was risky. Sheikh Moza was one of the key figures in Qatar's World Cup bid. When the camera switches to that ecstatic Qatar delegation in Zurich in 2010, Sheikh Moza is the first person you see. Thank you, Commissioner Bachelet. Thank you, Khadra. Known to many as the Queen, Sheikh Moza has launched programmes to help children access education, particularly in war-torn countries. She has also become the face of Qatar's soft power. She was actually a role model for me because I wanted to kind of do what she does, you know, but in some capacity. The idea of her still is... But these children, they still have hope as a light that guides them towards a better future. Malcolm's article criticised the Queen in scathing terms. According to his testimony, Sheikh Moza would regularly visit Musharib and had an office there. Repeatedly, security guards would be told to stand outside in intense heat in the middle of the day for the duration of her five-hour stays, directly contravening Qatar's new heat laws. Qatar's heat stress law says they rely on workers to do what's called self-pacing. That means that if a worker feels that he's getting sick or he's not feeling great and he wants to slow down how he's working, he has the right to stop. He can say to his supervisor, I want to stop. Now, you could say, OK, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, workers are the best, uh, or some workers have a very good sense of how they're feeling physiologically and might want to down tools. But remember that Qatar's labour system is deeply abusive and deeply exploitative. So how can you have a heat stress response based on self-pacing with a population that is extremely vulnerable to being coerced into working. Not only was this in contravention of these laws, though, it was something that Malcolm felt sure the Queen could see for herself. I actually tweeted about it uh, the first day that that incident happened. Someone reached out to me like, yo, Malcolm, you need to take that tweet down. You know, this is serious. You can talk about anything, but don't mention the ruling family. And I took it down, but I did a screenshot of it. It mentions the date and the time exactly when I tweeted it, but I took it down. But a year later, I was like, no, this cannot happen again. And especially when you think about who she is, I mentioned the name. Everything was factual. I double and triple checked everything before I wrote it. And I actually got sick after writing that article, I was trembling like after I published it because I knew like something would happen. So I was trembling for like uh, the whole day. Then I got sick the following day. I had to take an off, um, you know, but you know, someone had to do it. And then one day in May. My device got compromised, uh, digitally compromised. 
he had, to his surprise, developed a substantial native Qatari following. One of his supporters, or so he thought, tweeted him a link. So I clicked the link, and then the screen kind of went dark for a minute. Then I saw some things going on, and I just, like, exited. But, you know, it was too late. Four days later, Qatar's Ministry of the Interior asked Malcolm's company to hand him over. Immediately, I was arrested. I was taken to solitary confinement, actually two different facilities. So the first one, uh, nine by 12 feet, camera on the wall, lights constantly on. They were messing with the thermostat, so it was sometimes hot, sometimes cold. Officially, Malcolm was charged with spreading disinformation on social media. Unofficially, he was charged with receiving payments from foreign agents to spread disinformation against the state of Qatar. So basically, they wanted to charge me under the Espionage Act. That was scary, to be honest. I put on a brave face, but inside I was trembling, you know. He was soon moved to a second facility. 28 days passed. 28 days in solitary confinement. And then Malcolm was released. The International Labour Organization, foreign media and a group of NGOs led by Varney's MigrantRights.org had lobbied hard for his release. But also, in a strange twist of fate, Qatari students from Qatar Foundation, the very organization Sheikha Moza, the target of Malcolm's piece, headed up. So Qatar Foundation has a number of universities in it. Carnegie Mellon, Northwestern, Texas, ALM, I think, that it does so So students, alumni, faculty and staff wrote a letter to another influential member of the the ruling family saying that I should be released, I should be given due process, that I actually embody the values of Qatar Foundation, uh, which is the best compliment I've ever gotten, to be honest. And that was the highlight of the whole thing, just students standing up for me. uh, And it was risky for them to do so, but they did so anyway. Uh, One thing you need to differentiate is the, the difference between the Qatari people and the Qatari state. We wander into Mesherib and to the very spot where Malcolm and his colleagues stood outside for the Queen. Mesherib means a place to drink water in Arabic. It's deserted, but beautiful. All newly hewn white stone and smooth marble floors. Ornamental fountains tinkle in the squares between the buildings. For the first time, I find myself reflecting on my own experience of Qatar. Every single person who works here is effectively a guest of Qatar, you, you, you can't come here unless you're the spouse of someone who has a job. You can't come here without, without a job in the longer term. And so, if when I was I was working for BN Sports and and I perhaps more in a more extreme way, if you're working for a television company, of course you're like a, a spokesperson for for your workplace. But I didn't feel as though I was really in a position where I would feel comfortable making negative or saying necessarily very negative things about my experience out here because you're a guest really they they brought you over here they're paying you money to work here and in some respects you feel vulnerable to that and the fact that your job is kind of contingent on in a more extreme way than it is if you're just at home and, and working for a company your job is contingent on the on the Qatar government. Um, so yeah, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily have felt that comfortable about talking 
about my own experience when I was working here partly because you just want to keep your job don't you and and that's me with my with my British support with the British you know you know having been introduced to people at the British embassy feeling a level of comfort that makes me much much less vulnerable for any worker in Qatar there is ultimately an intense sense of insecurity here you generally come to do your job and earn your wage and for some migrants that's more than they could have dreamt of back home almost all migrants in fact have a listen to Manzor that's not his real name he's a Pakistani taxi driver we met on our first day he moved to Qatar 15 years ago Believe me, miss, uh, every people want to come to Qatar, yeah. every people want to work here, every people want to business here, every people to want to work here. Because here, nothing any politician, nothing any something, nothing any. Go home, prayer, work and sleeping. Do hard work, took money. People here do hard work and took money. Very nice. But for every story like this, there are those like Joffrey and Malcolm's. Just a few weeks before we arrived here, a group of workers went on strike in central Doha over unpaid wages, a rare act of protest. At least 60 of them were immediately deported. They just converged to the company to demand the salaries and Qatar de- detained and deported them. And this was give or take 100 days to the World Cup. Everyone is, is watching Qatar and this happened. If they can do this while the thing is still even not yet in place, so what happens when all the cameras have left? What happens when all the spotlight is gone? It's only right that Qatar looks at it, takes a step back and say, these reforms haven't worked. They haven't made it better for the workers. Workers are still struggling in so many different ways. They're still being paid very poorly or not paid at all. How do we set this right? How do we have a legacy of building a country on fair terms, right? And I think that hasn't happened. They've just been busy responding to every media article coming out, every um, Western mission coming in and making a comment that they have failed to stop and see what is required locally. They've failed to speak to workers. Where is the workers' agency? Where is their freedom of association, their freedom to express themselves? None of it exists. There have been gatekeepers for the last 12 years speaking on behalf of migrant workers, including me, uh, because it's just not a safe space for them to speak up. Some of them will have literally made Qatar what it is. The grand skylines, the vast, shiny new stadiums. Some of them will have put the paving stones in the ground that thousands of fans will walk over this month. That's what still upsets Emran now. The sight of the Corniche skyline and all those grand stadiums. You know the Carnish, the most beautiful place in Qatar. I have lots of pictures in my uh, Facebook. When I see that scenery in Qatar, inside uh, I'm crying because I have lots of memorable day in my life. Sometimes I send a beautiful time, horrible time, and dangerous time in this Lusalli Stadium and Al-Sad, Al-Ran, Al-Khor. There's lots of uh, memory. There is also a little part, uh, little participation uh, from uh, my side because it's uh, never relation to it, only money. Nobody knows uh, uh, 
uh, what is uh, the inside of the migrant worker? What happened? Nobody knows. Nobody never tried to uh, contact with us and never make a phone call. Mohammed, how are you? You are doing well? They never. They never. Yeah. It's yeah. very painful. <sighs> are you worried that people will? Yeah, people will forget during the World Cup how it's if been you just, you just leaving the Qatar, nobody make a call, nobody, and never getting, uh, you never get a message from the company or others. Nobody knows. But if I not came Qatar, the stadium never will be complete. As like me, there are many more workers stay in Qatar, they work they finish their life, they given their blood, given their sweet, given their uh, stamina, all are finished uh, by the making the stadium. Yeah, but it's almost like what's what's interesting and kind of uncomfortable about this really is that Qatar has brought these people here. People are still fighting for these jobs and paying money to get here to work in these conditions that are so difficult and so hot and and not comparable at all to the lifestyle and existence of the local population and yet people keep coming and I think for me seeing that and seeing the racial and geographical and hierarchy and, and of course gender hierarchy that, that exists in Qatar one of the uncomfortable things for me is that it's dark and obvious and deliberate in a way that is true globally but that right here in Qatar you see it every single day. So if you think about the comparison of the way that people would be living in Bangladesh, for example, in terms of the level of luxury as we perceive it and as we see it here, you probably don't think about that most days of the week. But when it's all brought together and has been organised in order that these people do construction, these people do the office jobs, blah, 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 it really makes you reflect on the nature of an inequality, not just here, but everywhere all over the globe. On the 16th of August last year, Qatar's Public Works Authority told companies to complete all construction work by September the 21st, 2022, and to plan for workers to leave. September the 21st was our second day in Doha, and put it this way, there is still a lot of work going on. Next week, we head to the stadium where the World Cup final will be held to talk to one of the guys in charge there about what we've learned. 
and to find out what 365 quid a night will get you in a desert camp for fans. We're sitting in the seats behind the dugout and then on the other side of the stadium there's probably 20, 25, 20, 25, 30 yeah, 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 not so many. It's tricky to kick people off contract. Those people have your interest in their hands. They're mobilised on your project, they're building your stadium. Because in the future, when you ask about the Qatar Stars League, people will not remember Chavis or the Raouls who, who came here at the end of their careers, but the next Xavi. So we'll see you next time for episode two of Inside the Qatar World Cup out on Tuesday on the Football Ramble. We contacted the Supreme Committee for comment and they gave us this statement. We have always been committed to ensuring that this World Cup leaves a transformational, social, human, economic and environmental legacy and is remembered as a landmark moment in the history of our region. Our work in the field of workers' rights in particular has set important new benchmarks across the region which we will continue to advocate for. This work will continue long after the World Cup is concluded, as it is important to us that we continue to instill and build on the progress made over the last decade. You have been listening to Inside the Qatar World Cup, presented by me, Kate Mason. The producers are Finn Ranson and Charlie Morgan. Sound design is by Tom Wally. Our executive producers are Luke Aaron Moore and John Teague. Special thanks to Equidem for their help in the making of this episode. Links to their work can be found in the synopsis. We'll see you next week. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.